If you're new with us today, you're getting in on some of the great family that is Spanish River Church. We love one another, we care for each other. If, however, you're looking for a perfect church, this is not it. We're a church that is serving a perfect Savior who loves us perfectly and is calling us together into a global mission to bring His kindness and His mercy to everyone we know, everywhere we go, starting right here and going right the way around the world. And the reason for that is because this has always been the church's mission. This has always been the heartbeat of God's people brought together around the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see that particularly in the ancient church as it begins to move out into the world. We're coming to the end today of a series called Remember the Church, about being brought back together again in this era of disconnection, being mindful of the fact that the church is the result of Jesus' mission, that he shed his blood for the church. The old hymn says, from heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her. And for her life, he died. And so you are a people. God never said to anybody, I will be your God and you will be my person. He said, I will be your God and you shall be my people. God has always formed a people together, a covenant people. And the scriptures say that we're baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ. And so Jesus did not come to save an isolated individual here and there but in fact to create a new humanity, a global humanity from every tribe and tongue and people and language under heaven that know him and know his love for them and are learning in our imperfect ways what it means to follow him every day. And when we come to Acts chapter 2, we see the beginning of that great gospel movement. So I want to invite you to turn in your Bible with me this morning to Acts chapter 2 to have a look at this ancient Christian community, and I want to talk to you today about the five practices of a remembered church. So we've been talking about remembering the church. What does the church look like when it is together? So read with me from Acts 2, 42. Now just to put this in perspective, Peter is, is preaching on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has just been poured out there. 120 believers. Was not a big crowd. After three years of public ministry, there are 120 people who are following Jesus. That's it. Not thousands, just 120 people. But then something beautiful happened. While they were, it says, all together in one accord, the Holy Spirit came to them. And that presence of the Spirit among them captured the attention of the city. And thousands of people began listening to Peter's message about what was going on. And he proclaimed Jesus to them. And thousands responded that day. 3,000 people came to faith in Jesus in Jerusalem that day, and they were baptized. So what happens when a a church of 120 people becomes a church of 3,120 people overnight? What does that look like, especially when those 3,000 people are from several different countries and nations all over the Middle East and North Africa? They're in Jerusalem. They were there on pilgrimage. And now you've got people from all over the world, all different kinds of people, and now they've been joined to Jesus. What does that look like? What do they do? Let's read. And they devoted themselves 
to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. And having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number, day by day, by day, by day, by day, if I can be permitted that little little extra there, those who were being saved. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Would you please send this same Holy Spirit who caused Luke to write these words to inscribe them in our hearts and be our teacher today we pray through Christ our Lord amen so here is this community of people they are from several different nations all at this point from a Jewish background but they've come to Jerusalem they came for the celebration of Pentecost and suddenly something more than they could have ever imagined has occurred They have encountered the presence of the living God and heard the news that Jesus, who they thought was dead, had in fact been raised from the dead. That he had died on the cross, they all knew that, but now they knew why. That he died on the cross to pay for the sins of humankind and to liberate us from the slavery that we have to sin and to death. That's what Peter's announcing. And he's telling them that this crucified one, to their astonishment, is not only alive, but is the Messiah and is now at the right hand of the Father and he reigns over everything. And it says when Peter was preaching that message, they were pierced to the heart and they responded. And then all of those people put their faith and trust in Jesus. They were baptized, and they and their children became part of this community. Peter says, the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as God shall call to himself. And what Luke does here now is summarize for us these few days right after that astonishing impact day after day after day here's what God was doing because what happened at the day of Pentecost was the beginning of something incredible and new that God was doing in the world through his church and when you look at this community of people we see a template a prototype if you will of what a church which has been impacted by the Holy Spirit, looks like a church which is doing what Jesus once done in the world, both in terms of visible witness, when people look at it, and verbal witness in terms of when people hear it, when they hear the message. And the first practice I want you to note about these people, I want to go right to the center of this text. The first practice I want you to note is the practice of unity. Look at verse 44. All who believed were together, and they held all things in common. They were together. Now, that doesn't mean that 3,000 people were all living in the same house. That would have been in a very big house. 
It meant that there was a unity among these people who came from such radically diverse backgrounds. You think about the society in which we live right now, how fragmented it is, how divided it is, how the divisions of our culture have moved through the church as well. This is something which is to be pushed back on and resisted because Jesus is praying for the unity of his church, and you see this community of people, one. And it's an astonishing unity because they come from places like Iraq and Libya and Egypt, and they come from Syria, and they come from Israel. They come from down further into Africa. In other words, this is an incredibly culturally diverse ethnically diverse community of people who've been gathered around Jesus Christ and they are together. Think about this. These words from Psalm 133, wonderful psalm. The psalmist in that text says how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It is like oil, precious oil upon the head, flowing down upon the beard, coming down on the robes, like Aaron's robes. He says, it's like the dew of Hermon. And listen to this, and there, Psalm 133, where God's people are unified, there the Lord commands the blessing. Unity is heaven's kiss on a people who are united in their love for God, for one another, and for their neighbors. Unity brings heaven's kiss to a community. This being all together here is a word that's used earlier in the chapter before the Spirit came. Because some of you might be thinking, well, of course they were one because the Spirit created that unity. Well, the Spirit did. But the Spirit had created unity among them even when they were a small group of 120 people. It says the day of Pentecost, when it came, they were all together in one accord. So the unity that they had as a small community became a unity that they had as a large community. Now, it was a unity that they had to practice because you might think it was just kind of like a magic wand, you know, and the, that, Lord, that the Lord just touched them and blessed unity broke out. Well, as you will see as you read on in the book of Acts that unity was something they had to work for because their cultural differences, their gender differences, because of their ethnic differences and their national differences were so profound, they began to work their way through into the community and it created disruption and they had to solve those issues. Unity was something they had to practice. Unity is not a sudden gift of the Spirit. The unity of God's people is a practice, a posture that we take towards one another in our differences. Unity does not mean that differences disappear. It means that despite the differences we have, we are united in Jesus Christ to him and therefore to one another. No one can say in the body of Christ, I don't need you. And no one can say in the body of Christ, I'm not needed. Every single one of us are connected to each other in this great unity. There's a wonderful scene in the book of 
Joshua, where that great commander of God's people as they go into the promised land is getting ready to lead them in battle and he sees the captain of the Lord's hosts, this messenger from heaven stand in front of him. And Joshua, who's a commander, says to him, are you on our side or are you on their side? Now that's the perfect question that everybody who lives for division wants to ask. Whose side is, is God on? And that captain of the hosts of the Lord says to him, I am the captain of the Lord's hosts. That's who I am. And he doesn't answer his question. In other words, what he says to him, the issue is not whether or not I'm on your side or their side. The question is whether or not you are on my side. That's the question. And if you are on the Lord's side, if you are seeking to follow Jesus Christ, you will inevitably find yourself in unity with all those who are seeking him. You'll be drawn together in a great unity that happens because of Jesus Christ. Our unity is in him. We have zero chance of being unified politically. We have zero chance of being unified around things that this world says are the only basis for our community. If you don't agree with me on this, we can't have community. But in Jesus Christ, people from all kinds of backgrounds find that that fragmentation comes to an end and a new unity emerges. Here's the second thing. They were a people practicing discipleship. Look at 242. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. John Stott put it this way. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit opened up a school in Jerusalem, and there were 3,000 people in the kindergarten. We have a school that's associated with our church. Wonderful school, K-8, Spanish River Christian School. Thank God for it. But did you know that the whole of Spanish River Church is a school? The whole church is a school. And every single one of us are students who are enrolled, and our teachers are the apostles. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The teaching of the apostles is recorded for us in the pages of the New Testament. And that is why we give ourselves and we give full attention to the Scriptures, because the Holy Spirit is guiding us, Jesus said, into the truth. When you become a believer in Jesus, that does not mean that the truth arrives for you, kind of like the 82nd Airborne just falling upon you. No, what Paul says is that you have to have your mind renewed. And Jesus promises the Spirit will guide us into the truth. And he prays for our growth in grace according to the truth that God has given to us. And that means that you and I have to be those who are absolutely committed to learning at the feet of the apostles. Now notice, this was a spirit-filled community. Sometimes people open up a conflict between the spontaneity of the spirit, right, and the formal, the formality of presentation of the scriptures. But there is no gap between the work of the Spirit and the work of the Word. The Word and the Spirit go together. 
And they must be together because the Spirit is what breathes out. He is the author of the words that the apostles wrote themselves. He is the one who stands behind what is being spoken. And it says in this text that there were miracles that were associated with that. The apostles had miracles that were taking place among them to verify the truthfulness of the message they were proclaiming. That was the purpose of signs and wonders. There are three great seasons of signs and wonders in the biblical revelation. First associated with Moses. And all of the signs and wonders that took place in Egypt as God used him to deliver his people and bring them the written revelation from God that we call the Ten Commandments and the covenant, the old covenant. And then there was a great season of miracles around Elijah and Elisha and their word ministry that came to Israel to draw Israel to repentance and bring them back to God. And then there was a third season, an outburst of miracles as Jesus and the apostles go about their work. And again, it's to confirm and verify the message that's being brought and the words that are being written. Now, it's not that there weren't any miracles in between those three great outbursts of miracles, but those are the three primary ones, and they're always associated with the Word of God coming to the people of God. The Spirit of God will always lead the people of God to commit to the Word of God. And that is why the Scriptures have such a high priority for us as believers in Jesus. Don't open up a war between the Spirit and the Word. The Spirit and the Word go together. You should have Word that's coming to you anointed by the Holy Spirit. And where the anointing of the Holy Spirit resides is the place where the Word of God is faithfully preached. And so, when you can gather with God's people, whether it's in a home or in a large setting like this, and hear the Word of God expounded, you are in a position where, like these early believers, you are devoted to the apostles' teaching. You are hearing what these men who followed Jesus brought to the church for all time. You are becoming a disciple. Here's a third thing. Community. Look at Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, fellowship. Now, there's a word that's used here. It's a well-known word for fellowship. You've probably heard it if you've been around church circles a little bit. It's the Greek word koinonia, koinonia. What does it mean? Fellowship is such a nice word. We're having fellowship together. I was so excited about that coffee announcement that Pastor Dan brought earlier. Because if people are here drinking coffee at 9 before the service at 10, that thrills my heart. Because I get to preach to caffeinated believers. That is such a joy. And then more fellowship afterwards. But when we talk about fellowship, we usually talk about it in terms less than what these people meant. Koinonia meant not just getting together and saying, isn't the coffee nice? It was a sharing of life. Koinonikos is the word that Paul used to describe an offering he was taking from all the people, the Gentile churches that he served, to needy people in Jerusalem. It was a koinonikos. It was something from them all of them, that they put together to care for other people. What is koinonia? Koinonia is taking what is inside of us, putting it all together, all of us together, taking what is inside of us, putting it together for the benefit 
of others. What happens in real Christian community? Real Christian community is love in action that meets needs and connects people in a visible witness of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus said, the world will know you are my disciples because of the precision of your doctrinal statements. Well, no, no, no. That's actually not what he said, is it? Jesus said, the world will know you are my disciples because of the loudness of your music. No, that's not what he said. Jesus said, the world will know you are my disciples because of the effectiveness of your political action groups. Actually, no. Jesus said, the world will know you are my disciples by the way you love each other. And that is why he said, Father, I pray you make them one. There's that unity factor again. So that the world may know that you sent me. How does the world see Jesus Christ? The world encounters Jesus Christ in the visible witness of the Christian community. Not just in saying, let's have coffee together, vital as that may be. I mean, coffee, let's face it, is a magic power. Thanks be to God. But in the way we take what belongs to us and we share it. And they did this radically. They were selling their possessions and belongings, it says here. Well, of course, that's a verse a lot of people would just prefer to skip over. Selling their possessions and distributing to the proceeds to all as any who had need. Are you saying the early Christians practiced uh, some form of communism? They sold everything they had? They just gave it. Well, first of all, Marxist-Leninism is a demonic entity that enslaves people. And it is not voluntary. It is a tyrannical force that steals from people. It takes what is others. This is a completely voluntary action that is born of love. So let's get out of our heads any notion of a kind of communism that's going on here. And then as you keep reading in the text, it says you'll notice that they met in their homes. They met in their homes. So all these people who sold their possessions still had what? They still had homes, and I guess they had a chair or three because they all met there. And so what it says that they sold their possessions and they held all things in common, it doesn't mean that private property ceased to exist. It meant that they sacrificially, and let's not lose sight of this. Don't think, oh, thank God, pastor, pastor comforted me there. I don't have to give up everything. No, 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 hang on. If you've got a bunch you should probably set it before the Lord and say, what can I live with less of so that other needs are met? Because generosity, koinonikos, that's the Greek word for generosity, koinonikos, the generosity of these people is what fellowship looks like. Spanish River Church is a church known for its generosity. It's koinonikos, and that means a generous attitude towards each other. We give each other forgiveness. We give each other mercy. But it also means in very practical terms, when there's needs, we reach towards each other. Fellowship is not like this. Be warmed and be filled, we say to somebody who's in need. When we see a need, we step towards that person, and we begin to find out how we can meet that need. Love is not an emotion. Love is a practice. Fellowship is a practice of this ancient church. And it was sacrificial, and it was bountiful, 
And they did it, and the world took notice. Here's a, here's a fourth thing, worship. It says here that they gave themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. To the breaking of bread and the prayers. Don't miss the definite article in the text. The breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, it says later in the text they were breaking bread from house to house. That's just regular meals, taking their meals together. But this text talks about the breaking of bread and the prayers. Not just praying, but the prayers. This is talking about the formal gathering of God's people, which was marked by the, the right that Jesus established in the church to take the bread and break it, take the cup and drink it, the Lord's Supper, and was marked by prayers, prayers like the Lord's Prayer, our Father that art, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our children learn that prayer in our children's ministry, and thank God that is so. It's a prayer that should be on the lips of every believer. It's a prayer we can pray all together, just as we break bread together, just as we take the cup together. This is public gathered worship. Now, when most people think of worship, when they use the term worship today, today's contemporary usage of worship, they just mean the music. Like, I just like the worship, I don't like the sermon. Well, I don't blame you for that, but I got news for you, the sermon is worship. The sermon is worship, giving is worship, the benediction is worship, the call to worship is worship, the, ben the benediction, the invocation, it's all worship, so is commun communion is worship. It's all worship. Worship is all that is happening publicly, and these early believers gave themselves to it. And worship as a congregation is not the same thing as personal worship or family worship. I'm going to have a lot more to say about this when we get into our next sermon series, but you have your personal worship, hallelujah, glory. And you guys all in your personal worship times, I know you were all so stinking spiritual. You are so amazing. And you all have your, deep, you know, your personal hip deep in glory worship time. And you're just, you know, look I, look, I get it. Some people, some people have cable and some people have satellite. I don't know if you like to worship with your hands lifted or not, whatever. You get, you know, but, but here's the thing. Personal worship is not the same thing as congregational worship. Personal worship is vital, but so is congregational worship. That's why we're remembering the church. And our worship together is not the same thing as your worship on your own. And your worship on your own is vital, but the worship of God's people all together is marked by a presence of Jesus Christ that specially tends to the two or three who are gathered in his name. And notice that this happens in homes and in the temple, large gatherings and small gatherings. That is the worship they gave themselves to. And I want you to notice here, lastly, the fifth practice, and that is mission. If you come down here to verse 46 and 47, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts. So there is a filled people. They're full. They're glad. Okay? But they didn't view the church as something that was just going to fill them up. I've got what I need. Many people view the church as a utility. Many people view the church as something like a doctor or a dentist. I'll go when I need it. I had a guy come up to me, oh gosh, 25 years ago. And he said, he said I'm so glad I come here because you, fill, you, you feed me. And I'm like, brother, I want to teach you to cook. 
If all that's happening is you're coming here to be fed, please give your seat up to somebody who really needs it. And he looked at me in the most astonished way. I said, brother, I delight to feed you, but I want you to know the goal that God has for you is not to be a well-fed, fat, baby Christian. He wants you to grow and become engaged. The whole reason he's feeding you is so that you can become engaged in the mission. Look at this. It says they were praising God, so there's the worship, having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. In other words, what was happening in this church was that they were not only being fed and worshiping God and enjoying community, but there was something of their relationship with the society around them, with their city around them, with their neighbors around them, that was a welcome mat for God the Holy Spirit to be at work and save people through them. Now, I want you to notice a couple things about it. It says, the Lord did it. The Lord did it. The Lord added. The Lord added to their number those who were being saved. God is the one who saves. We don't save, but he does. But he does it through his people. He does it through the witness of his people. You can't sit back and say, well, if the Lord wants to move, he'll just move. No, he is moving, but he moves through his people, and he does it. And watch this secondly. The Lord added to the church day by day those who were being saved. He did not add them to the church without saving them, and he did not save them without adding them to the church. There was no such thing as a churchless Christianity in the book of Acts. He saved them and added them, and he did not add them without saving them. Some of the best stories I've heard from members of this congregation are from people who came to the church and came for a while and then finally understood the gospel. It got down into their hearts and then they came to saving faith in Jesus. They were sitting with a pastor. They said, I want to join the church. And he asked them gospel questions. How do you know that the Lord would let you into heaven if you stood before him now? And he said to you, why should I let you in? What would you say? And repeatedly, I've heard people tell the story of what they would say. They would say things like, well, I've tried to be good. I've taught Sunday school. I'm a good father. I'm a good mother. Who's the only person you answered, mentioned in the answer to your, that question? I, I, I. So in whom is your trust? I'm trusting myself for salvation? And what's the only basis for salvation? By grace through faith. In Jesus Christ. That's the only hope we have. And my friends, that's the only hope of the world. These people were filled. They were filled with gladness, filled with praise. They were filled with the Spirit. But they went out into the world and they filled the city with the name of Jesus. And they filled the world with the gospel of Jesus. And because of these five practices... I want you to notice something that everybody experienced. It says here in the middle of this text that everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Awe. I want to be part of a church that when people are together, there's a sense 
of awe. What, what is awe? Awe is what takes hold of you, not when you just go to the beach and go, isn't that nice? But when you see a 50-foot wave coming in and you go, oh. Awe is not when you look at a little hill. Awe is when you look at Everest from base camp and you go, oh, awe. Because we are so big in our eyes. But you know what happens in a community that practices these things? They're not big. God is big. Jesus is big. I want to ask you this morning, is Jesus that big in this church? Is Jesus that big in your heart? He will be that big. If you will simply turn to him now and say, Jesus, Savior of the world, you who died, forgive me. You who rose, rule over me. You who will come again, come and live in me now. And for those of us who are members of the church and know we're the Lord's and you read a text like this, I hope your heart is as challenged as mine when you read a text like this and you think, Lord, Lord, we have a long way to go. Don't you want to see Jesus build us to look like that? Amen. Let's pray together. Now, Lord, we pray that you would help us to cultivate unity, that you would help us to cultivate devotion to the apostles' teaching, that you would help us to cultivate community together, that you would help us to cultivate worship together, that you would help us to cultivate mission together, that you would make us a people who learn to love our city to life. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.